rambling in Havana I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this Welcome, everyone, to episode 61 of the Matt Jones podcast, the third since we kind of rebooted after a few months off. And I thought, uh, you know, if we're going to go through and start them back, we had Vanetti and my second favorite uh, podcast guest. Only would be my first, I just don't have him as much, is my good friend from ESPN, Bomani Jones. Bomani, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Matt. How are you? I'm doing terrific. It is. we're taping this on Thursday night. You and I are both kind of night owls, and you almost have to be now. You're like your schedule, I feel like you're on every show now. Am I right about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I, I, it's actually kind of called down now. I only do around the horn once a week, and we do the five days highly questionable, and then the radio show. But I get off work at seven o'clock, and I gotta say, getting off work at seven o'clock is not business, right? Like I enjoy doing the show. But leaving work when it's dark outside, yeah. it doesn't make you feel good. But you, but I mean, you you used to do you did a night show for a while, didn't you? When you were on TSN or whatever. Oh, see, I did when I did the work in Canada. I did a morning show, but that was a morning show out of my house that started at seven. Okay, so I, I, I guess I thought six fifty five and be there at seven. But I did a nine to eleven show on ESPN Radio before I did this one, That's and right. that was also out of my house. But, man, working until 11 o'clock, I ain't done that since college. <laughs> <laughs> and I ain't in college no more. Well, let's. I want to talk personal for a second before we get to the sporting stuff. You, you re-signed with, with ESPN, uh, which got a lot of publicity. Made me very happy. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I heard Tony Kornheiser say once, you're always the happiest when you see your friends have big success, and I was very happy. Tell me what it means, though. I mean, you're, you've been doing this show with Levitard. Is that continue? Like, what what does the new deal mean for you? Well, yeah, as of now, um, I'll be doing highly questions. Um, I think the press release they put out said that they're developing further projects, and that's probably the best way to put it at this point. Um, and there's a commitment to keeping the radio show going at four, you know, from four to seven. And so for me, like, this is, this job, I've had this job more than twice as long um, as I've ever had a job. You used to be getting, you like used to get fired all the time. And now you're like at a, at a home. I don't know how to deal with this Bomani. I, I like the Bomani that was always jumping. Yeah, this is a little bit different, right? Like I get fired, places will go out of business, places will merge and not bring me along <laughs> even though I had ratings. Like, so like this is, this is a different experience. Experience and I tell people before I used to write for ESPN.com and I had a contract uh, that was not renewed. This is now like ten years ago, um, but at that point I kind of concluded that you know being someone on ESPN was the thing that was just not going to happen, and so I kind of you know put together the career I had kind of around the idea that it wasn't going to happen, which is to say I was just going to do what I wanted to do anyway because I wasn't shooting to get anywhere. I was really just doing it because I enjoyed it, and I figured that was probably the best version of me there would be. And then, lo and behold, I wind up back here. Yeah, and you and, and you found your your niche. I want to talk to you about the Levitard show because I don't think we've talked about that, highly questionable, uh, since we started doing this podcast. You and I have it on the air. You know, that whole thing – it's interesting how that whole thing has developed and that show, you guys have really good chemistry. 
What's weird about it is it's not the kind of show that if you had asked me what kind of show would Bomani be good at, I don't know that I would have said a show where part of it is that there's kind of a goofy sidekick guy. That didn't strike me as something that would work with you, but it does, and and I, I don't know. For some reason, it really entertains me, even though it's not really the Bomani I know on that show. I still like it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So that's an interesting thing. Because when I first started doing the show, one thing Dan said to me that he thought would be immensely helpful about doing the show was that the things that I had been doing previously, unless you heard me on the radio, there wasn't really a, a place where you would hear me, like, really doing anything other than kind of giving a sports opinion and talk about some, you know, depressing macro-level social right? <laughs> That's true. And you so, were very serious, I guess, is the way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, people call me for all the serious stuff. Like, yeah. it happens that I'm pretty good at doing the serious stuff, but it's easy to get, like, locked into our people thinking that you're a serious guy. Like, uh, when we were getting the press release together um, for the extension, the first draft of it, I saw it, and I was like, hey, man, this doesn't sound like any fun. Like, can we can we throw a little bit of fun in here? Because I do feel like I have a lot of fun with this. And so when that show was a show that I enjoyed. And, you know, before I was on as a co-host, I would do segments a couple times a week where I would just sit in and, you know, yeah. do a, like, not quite an interview, but just a back and forth. But it was a little weird because it was a back and forth with somebody I only knew from doing those back and forth. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like I had some prior yeah. relationship with Dan. So, it's like you're kind of getting to know somebody in this bizarre sort of way. And then, you know, wind up on the show. The goofy stuff was actually comfortable because I was familiar with the show. And I liked that. It was just different, you know, doing something like that on camera. Like, there's a kind of different dynamic from recording that show that's just kind of it almost like it almost feels like you're filming public access like we're in a little no, bit d- there is know. a little bit of that i mean i was there remember you you i was down there with yeah. you one day and it's a tiny studio people don't realize it's in a restaurant right and it's like like you have to walk through guys serving wings to get there and then you know yes. there's not really a changing room there's like a curtain and it's just strange. It doesn't. It, it's a lot like the TV show I do in Lexington, which doesn't feel like TV. But for an ESPN show, that seems strange. But I think it like adds to the vibe and makes it good for you. Yeah, like it's 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 a. It doesn't feel like a workplace necessarily. Um, and it's also it's at the Cleveland or hotel, you know. So like the things you see walking from the car until you get up the steps. It's like, it's, it's a very bizarre place. <laughs> yes, it that is. That is. <laughs> yeah, you know, to say that that is where you worry. But no, but the show rests on a very, like, simple sort of quality. And one thing about Dan is he is absolutely in this for the fun of it, right? Like, he can't exist unless his work is fun. Like, most of us, but, but, he, but now that's, it's interesting, though. Is, is he's, in, he seemed, he's always been, from what I've seen, a guy who likes fun. But he also likes to talk about serious things. Like he's not – you two – I think watching you two is in general interesting. I bet being behind the scenes with you two would be really interesting. But you both sort of share that. Like things matter to you more than just the goofiness of sports. But you both can be goofy, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, like, I think the thing that I've always liked about Dan's work and kind of drew me, you know, to wanting to do this is in part, I think he has a good gauge on what should be joked about and what should be taken seriously. Because the problem with sports coverage is we tend to have that completely backwards. I right? agree. Like I agree. Be, yeah. You know, we'd be dead ass serious about this Antonio Brown video, right? <laughs> and then, like, give 15 seconds to Oregon making people urine brown stuff. You know, like, like That's our true. Are, are, like, really, really skewed. And so, like, the cool thing that works well with the two of us is I think that we both resisted to a degree kind of the hegemony of that sort of sports coverage. And so the things that we find serious, we will then take those to be serious. And then, you know, there's fun to be found in those topics, too, right? Like, I do feel like because people are so scared, of talking about the more serious things, they often avoid the things that are actually legitimately funny that you can talk about that like won't get you in trouble. I'm going to take a break here for a second to tell you about Vistaprint.com. Look, if you like this podcast, the way we're able to do it so well, it's because of these advertisers and Vistaprint has been one of our longest ones. 500 business cards, $9.99. It's that simple. If you have other types of logos or designs, you want to customize your text, your color, you can do it for business cards, T-shirts, banners, whatever you want. They will do it for you at Vistaprint.com. They guarantee you'll love the products. I mean, it's guaranteed. Like, if you don't, if you don't like it, they, uh, they're going to make it right. And amazing customer service and design. It's all there at Vistaprint. So 500 business cards, nine ninety nine. Now, this is the key. For this podcast, if you really want to help the podcast, and I know you do, use the promo code MATT, M-A-T-T. 500 business cards, nine ninety nine. promo code MATT. It lets them know you listen to this podcast. Design them. Make them work. Vistaprint.com. Promo code Matt, any budget, especially one. If you got nine ninety nine, just go ahead and do it. Now back to Bomani. I want to talk to you about a bunch of different things, but I saw one story today which I wasn't planning on talking to you about, but I saw it and I thought to myself, you know, that's an interesting thing. You mentioned Taggart. Charlie Strong came out today and said something. You know, he's down there in South Florida, and he said that he felt like he let black coaches down by the fact he didn't do well at Texas. And I almost wanted to go up to him like I was his friend, even though I'm not, and say to him, man, why do you feel like that? Like, that's exactly how you don't need to feel. But what did you think of that comment? Well, I do understand why he would feel that way. And the reason he would feel that way is a kind of cynical understanding of the fact that his performance probably would. Means nobody else will get it? There would be some... Yeah, some reverberating effect. So, like, let's say that the Tom Herman thing doesn't work and the next hot shot coach out there is Willie Taggart. Will they, you know, like, if that's yeah. the next guy, let's say Willie Taggart, let's say Willie Taggart goes 12-0 and 0 at Oregon, and then, like, is Texas then going to make the move on a black coach given all the things that happened that involved the blackness of the coach? Right? Like, I think that's a – I understand how he feels that way, but absolutely it's not his fault. Right, like it shouldn't be like that. But you sh- he shouldn't have the pressure like he- of an of a of us. I mean, it's good that he would have that position and have a chance, but he shouldn't have the pressure of letting down a whole race of coaches if he doesn't fail. Because you know, a white coach doesn't have that pressure. Yeah, like I think one key to, to happiness as a black person, or something that I've just generally found, is you have to have an understanding of the fact that um, the next. Uh, 15 black coaches that get hired to all go to BCS Bowl. And if the 16th one does a bad job, 
we're going to talk about how the 16 is one messing up for everybody, right? Like, you're never <laughs> going to be able to – the standard is irrational. Therefore, like, you're, you're not going to break this by demonstrating competence because competence has already been demonstrated, right? Like, you're, you're not going to convince people that way. The issue is not really convincing. And so there's a certain liberation that comes from realizing that what you do has to be about what you do. And you have to make yourself understand that because it's very easy to feel like you have that weight on your shoulders. But, like, if I had gotten on highly questionable and it hadn't gone well, like, it ain't my fault if it messed it up for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not. And we need to focus on whose fault it is because it ain't mine. Don't turn on me. Well, you know, it's an interesting – I like, have the opportunity to fail. Like, it's like we – all right, so you and I met – We've I've told the story before. We won't have to do it again. But you and I met because you wrote a column about Tubby and sort of said they understood why Kentucky fans might have been tired uh, of Tubby. You know, Tubby has – you'd be amazed, Bomani – how much people now love him here. And I think there's a couple really? – uh, yeah, and I think there's two reasons. One, Patino being at Louisville has made it to where the Patino years, which Tubby was always compared not favorably to, don't look as good because he's coaching the enemy. And then the fact Billy sucked, Billy Gillespie. And so it sort of looks like, yeah. well, you know what? Tubby wasn't as bad as we thought. Plus, everybody thinks Tubby's a good man. I don't know if that happens if Cal is right after Tubby. But I do think it sort of worked. But it's interesting. I wonder if Cal leaves and the guys, let's say, Shaka Smart, do you think people start going, well, Tubby? Does that make sense? Even though it's been a long time ago, completely different styles of play, et cetera. Yeah, there'll be a lot of people who do that. I don't know how much it would like actually matter, but like there will be kind of a default to people who absolutely do that because people are typically intellectually lazy. Um, I will say this, though. I think it's interesting about Tubby, and I wonder how much if there's kind of a, you know, Tubby was better than we gave him credit for at the time to the fact that there are teams from that time period that provided some legitimately good memories, I would think, right? Yes. Like the 2003 yes. team, for example, there's some legitimately good memories on a team that had a 25-game winning streak. You just called Dwayne Wade on a day where nobody would beat him, right? It's easy to appreciate that with some measure of distance. Like, Tubby went to all those Elite Eights. They're teams that people felt good about when they had those teams. There's a demand that comes from a program that's like Kentucky, but I bet when you can go back on it and you start getting in, like, these history discussions with other people, when you get into discussions like history of the program, like Kentucky versus Carolina, you then also kind of have to be like, well, you know, those Tubby years are actually better than you get credit for. No, you're right. In order to win that argument. And there's also the defensiveness that – I think Kentucky fans, especially now I'm talking about the real Kentucky fans, not the handful of goober, you know, racist Kentucky fans. The real Kentucky fans, I think, have always been kind of defensive about we like Rupp. Rupp is our legend. But we don't want you to think we're racist because we like Rupp, right? Please don't think that. Like, there's a defensiveness there. And I think Tubby, there's was some appreciation, especially after he was gone, about the fact that there was an historic significance for the program that was good for our reputation that he was here. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, see, the Rupp thing is interesting uh, because, you know, and I don't know if I would say I quote-unquote agree with this, but I would have to say that I have a certain understanding of the idea that there's a time period where the prevailing, like, 
sentiment in a lot of places was absolutely indefensible. Like, not just by modern standards, but even by the standards of those times. There's just a lot of people that was on board with it. Like, I find I had these arguments say, when you talk about Ole Miss, for example, right, what do you do if a period that you consider to be glorious is something that also is tainted by, like, this obvious and destructive racism, right? Like, it, it winds up being a lot to ask people to sacrifice all this time and identity that they have because of this understanding that comes, right? Yeah, like well, the 66 team, Bomani. about guys like Rupp. The 66 team, the, the Rupp's runs that lost to Texas Western, is a beloved team having, just because they were beloved, they were short, Pat Riley was on the team, Louie Dampier, and right. so it's like people don't want to, it really hurts people in Kentucky for people to act like they can't love that team. You know what I mean? And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like I think, I mean, I do, I do understand the dilemma that kind of comes with that. Uh, the only thing about it is, like, it's difficult to deal with when you talk to people about, like, and I use like Rupp as an example here because I don't have that many in this day and age. I don't have that many discussions with people about Adolf Rupp. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's kind like it's kind of hard to balance. Like, wow, we have the great basketball team, so we love them. It just so happens that our coach was a bit of a racist. And then there are, we also, we can't ignore, like, the fact that some of the identity of the program and why certain people have certain affections for it is tied into the fact, like, people people love, love, love collections of talented white basketball players. They love them to death. They man. love what? Love I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. They love what? Well, oh, oh, talented white basketball players. They, like, you know, but they also hate them. Down. They also hate them. I find myself yeah. hating the white guys more than I hate the black guys. I say this though. I think people hate certain white guys because the thing that happens in basketball, the something I think that happens generally now in professional sports is that black dudes who participate in sports are not entirely poor, but they are more likely to be poor. Um, you know, the white guys tend to be affluent. So like, we hate the rich white guys. Yeah, we hate yeah, the rich the, white it's guys. The rich, it's the rich white guys like with Duke. The thing with Duke is. It's not like that they've always had white dudes. They've always got those white dudes. (laughs) Well, like you used to say to me that you loved Patrick Sparks because he was a country white dude, right? Like you liked Yeah, I like country white dudes. Yeah, I like country white dudes. Like I'm like, like, there's different kinds of white dudes. But if somebody rolled out a team of like Gordon, like in Indiana, rolled out like a team of Gordon Haywards. I know Gordon Hayward didn't go to Indiana, but you know what I mean? Like in fact, like Butler Gordon Hayward, though. Like, you know, Cody Zeller, for example. Like, nobody hates Cody Zeller. No, they don't. No. Cody, you know, hates Cody Zeller. Like, there's, there's like a certain type of white dude that people. Well, they hate the entitled hating. the entitled white dude, right? The dude, the Luke yeah. Kennard, Grayson. They're all Duke guys, basically. That's who they hate. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, and we can't. Like, I think one thing that gets forgotten in, like, this race thing with people doing the lumping, like, Let's never get to this point where we think that, like, all white people like each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the truth. <laughs> you know? Like, and that's the same thing with black people. Like, don't like don't get this twisted. Like, yeah, there are some black people that rock with Floyd Mayweather. There's a bunch that hate Floyd Mayweather. Like, within <laughs> the group, there are tensions, no matter what the group happens to be. You know? So there's going to be some white dudes that the white dudes don't like. No, that's a, that, that's a fair point. All right, I always – there are a couple things I always like to go – uh, talk with you about and let's uh, one of them of course is Louisville now every time you and I talk about Louisville we usually talk about Rick Pitino and all that but I want to f- move it just a little to the side 
to the Bobby Petrino stuff. You know, for a school that has all of the Rick Petino prostitute issues, to then also have Bobby Petrino and the wakey leaks and then the Jurich statement where he was like, yeah, well, you're distracting us from our bowl game and all that. I mean, you're, you, you don't live in this state. You're a neutral observer. How do you look at the University of Louisville? I mean, they hired a sociopath. <laughs> like, like, I mean, I, I think that when you when you think about Bobby Petrino and you try to evaluate anything that Bobby Petrino does or has done, it has to be done first from the context that he is a sociopath. I like, and I, and I, I don't mean to diagnose because I'm not a doctor, yeah. but I mean. I mean, but if you look at all his behaviors, he is singularly focused and selfish in a very, very unique way. You couldn't have thought that changed. (laughs) That man (laughs) laid in a ditch with a broken neck and instantly started cooking up lies. Yeah, exactly. Do you realize how dedicated to lying you have to be? In that moment, to be like, okay, what's my story going to be? And by the way, to come up with one that almost worked, almost it, it, like, yeah. like, the, like, like the plan was actually really good. He just had to, it was just a split second matter of timing. But like, once you decide you're going to hire Bobby Petrino, you can't get mad when Bobby Petrino lies to you. Now, what I think that Louisville believed is that when they hired him, he would be so desperate yeah. that he would stay totally on the straight and narrow, where I think the only thing that really changed is Bobby Petrino understands that he will only really be able to coach at Louisville. That's the only well, place he, I think he'll And be he was money. on the straight and narrow until he got Lamar Jackson, and all of a sudden, you know, he's back. You know what I mean? He's back. And so it doesn't matter in <laughs> yeah. his mind as much. Yeah. yeah, but I'm saying, but if one of his guys gets some information about the game plan – Bob Petrino is not the guy who's saying no. <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's not. You can't put that in front of Bobby Petrino and expect him to pass it up. That's <laughs> not the guy he is, and you know that when you hire him. So, on what level, yes, you, athletic director, you should rebuke him for doing this, except you knew who he was when you hired him. Like, every time Pat Bajon gets arrested, Somebody says, well, I think it's time for the Bengals to go ahead and release him. Why? Pac-Man Jones got arrested? But they didn't see that coming? <laughs> they knew that. Like, they, like, not everybody operates in the zero-tolerance space. Louisville's made the decision that we can't get a better coach than this. And they don't think that he will, like, wildly embarrass them again. And that's just what they're rolling the dice on. Yeah. And, and they've done the same thing with Rick. So, clearly, like, at the institutional athletic department level – they just don't care, right? So, like, they're just going to say – I mean, I think you hit it. They say that we're Louisville, which is a good school, but not a, you know, whatever. These are the guys. We'll never get better than these guys, so we just hold our nose and whatever. And, you know, with, with Patino, it's a little bit different. Because Louisville's a really I mean, good program. Yeah. And he's Rick Patino, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's Rick Pitino. I mean, like, like we're talking about something different, and Louisville basketball needs something different. Do you believe but he didn't know? Do you believe he didn't know? Oh, uh, Pitino? Yeah, no, no, I'm not asking what you have proof of. I'm not asking you to be in a court of law. I'm just saying if you're sitting there with your buddies 
and they said, Bomani, do you think Rick knew about Katina and the dancers? Your answer would be what? I do not think he knew. Wow. Look at you. I Believe just don't think I just don't I just don't think he's that stupid. <laughs> I just I just don't think he's that stupid because it's just not worth it. I think if, if Rick Petito knew about that, I think he'd be like, go get a hotel room. No, I'll you're right. Pay. I already get better women, right? <laughs> he would get like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or just get this off the yard. Like, that's just not worth it, right? Like, I don't think necessarily he would stop us being strippers. I think strippers in the door is where it would be over the line. <laughs> but, you know, but you say that, but go back to Karen Cipher and think about all the dumb stuff he did. You know, remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's about him getting some. Right? Like, I think that people are way more focused about other people's sex lives than they are about their own. That's true. Well, you know, that's a really good point. That's a good psychoanalysis there. You're much more, uh, yeah, you're much more apt to do something stupid when it's you. Oh, I got all the right answers for everybody else. All of them, man. (laughs) All of them. I absolutely, I I love it. Now, um, you mentioned the tagger thing. One of the things that I, I see, like when you when you talk, the, the fact that college athletes don't get paid infuriates you, and that's one of the things you talk about a lot. And I'm with you, they should. But I understand, even though I disagree with it, the argument that they don't. But isn't what happened at Oregon, though the worst of all, not only do you not get paid, but we're going to inflict bodily harm on you. Like, I mean, that sto- that's a really bad story, isn't it? Yeah, and but see, this is part of why they kind of have to be paid, right? Because I actually see both sides of this at Oregon. Like, I'm not as inclined to hammer their staff for this the more I think about it. Oh, and really? The reason okay. Is, well, and don't get me wrong. I think that they, I think that this clearly went too far. Um, but I think Oregon says they had people there with water, and part of this is you guys not drinking enough water, right? Because they have, you know, people there with water. And they say that you can back out of the workout if you need to stop. Now, there is a intrinsic systemic problem with you can back out of the workout if you feel like you can't do yeah, it. Because you're not going to do it. Because, you're going to think of people think you're a wimp. Right. And also, but, but on the other side of it, the strength and conditioning coach's job is to make you do things you believe you cannot do, right? Like, there's a fundamental, like, dilemma that comes from this whole thing. Now, what Oregon has to answer for is the fact that it ain't happening everywhere. Not everybody's putting their guys in the hospital. Yeah. But I think that we, we, it's, we need to have a really frank discussion about how, at the very least, if you're not going to pay these kids, you need to arm them before they get into these programs to be resolute enough to say, look, I need to stop right now. But that's a lot to ask kids at that age. So the strength coach, whose whole job is to try to push you beyond your own belief of your own limits, has to somehow do that while not pushing guys beyond their own limits. Like, it's a lot there. But if they were getting paid, I think a lot of these forces still absolutely be at play. Isn't, though, some of that – the f- all right, so I, people who listen to my radio show have heard me rant about the football, and to some extent basketball, but it's really football, the football coach's mentality. 
Meaning there's this notion, especially amongst football coaches, that they can sort of act like no other human beings are allowed to act in society. You know, they can scream and yell and push and shove and act like an absolute moron that if it happened anywhere else in society, we would go, that is totally unacceptable, and it would usually lead to lawsuits. Yet for some reason in football, that's the area we go, you know what, that's okay. That's a. I think that's not just at college. That's in the pros. It's in high school. It's in grade school. It drives me nuts. Do you agree or disagree with me on that? Totally agree. And the thing is, football is way more self-important than any other sport, right? Like, like you'll never have anybody talk about the war on basketball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like that, that's never going to happen. No one's ever going to believe themselves to be a nation in the way that, like, the hardcore football people do. Like, and it's interesting. Like, people talk about like, all these wonderful things that football does for people. And I think that what they say is very often correct. And it's act like football is the only thing that can possibly do that. <laughs> yeah, like it's football, the only thing that can build teamwork is football. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Like, the football team is the only kind of team that exists, right? Like, come on, man. You know, but as a result, like, I think about what it, like, what it means. I'm from Texas, you know. It's like what it means in a small town to be the coach. Yes. Um did you, you know, like, like Friday they, Night Lights, they, they, the TV show? Because there's a lot about that, and that that seem, would seem like a yeah. show you would like. Did you see it? You know, I never got around to watching the TV show. The book is possibly the best book I've ever read. And I would say to you, like, let me say, the TV show study. is the best depiction of small-town America I've ever seen. I mean that on television. Now, I mean, it, you know. It, yeah, it's the- Go ahead. And that's how I felt about the book. Yes. I felt the same way about the book, is that it was, like, I think it's a very important book for people to read on a zillion levels, but it, it helped explain a lot of how small-town America, especially, even though that's the quasi-South and West Texas, but especially in the South, like how the specialization wound up being the way it is, and what the things are that people prioritize, and how sports can bring people together to a degree, but really in the name of self-interest, but they don't, like, it winds up being magnet holes, you know, where they mm-hmm. where they can't, like, get close to each other. Like, it's all these things that happen, and it's all centered around football, and I think a big part of it is that football is so readily associated with masculinity, and we have, and we prioritize masculinity in this society in such a way that makes everybody believe that football is the most important thing in the world, and so those coaches when they're doing all that crazy stuff, they're just being men, they're just building men, all this stuff, man, and they get to act like idiots. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a, there's a like we could unpack that a lot, but I, I you should watch Friday Night Lights. I will be, I, I I would say probably to be fair when I say you make a really good point about small towns. There's a there's an idea in America that small town America is white people America. City America is black people America. You are from a small town, and, and, and the South has a lot of small town black people. I'm not sure Friday Night Lights does a good job at that, but I would say to you that's something you talk about a lot that we just immediately, when we say small town, think white, and when we say big city, we think black. Yeah, because I, like, I grew up in northwest Houston, but I went to school in this town called Walla, population 1,493. When I was there, my parents worked at uh, Prairie View A&M University, one town over, right? And so, like, in a lot of ways, 
that's where I grew up because that's where I went to school every day. That's you know I'd be on campus after school, all that stuff. That's where you play basketball, like all those things. And yeah, it's really funny when people talk about small towns. They're like, no, no, no. I what one good thing for me about like having done that is like the mythologization, mythal. I don't know. Make it like make it with the the. The the stereotypes of all the normalcy of behaviors of white people, like, nah, you ain't fooling me with that one. Like, hey, all these people are going to read the Hillbilly Elegy now, <laughs> right, so they can find out about, like, the working small-town white man. Now, I know that dude. I have to go learn about him. I like, know, but, I that, but to be fair, that book's good, Bomani. <laughs> I, I I believe that oh, yeah, no, good. I, I'm I mean, halfway. I, yeah, I'm about I'm about halfway through it. I just I just have to pick it back up. I mean, you, you it is good, but and, and that guy I've had him on this podcast, and I think he became a symbol of a larger Trump debate, et cetera, which was not what he did when he wrote it. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but what I'm saying though is that I think for a lot of people, they're going to read that book because it's like revelatory of this window of life that they yes, don't know yes. anything about. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I know it. <laughs> I know these dudes. Like these are the cats. Like these are the cats I went to high school with. Now school with a bunch of them, right? But the same thing, like on the other end, there's a lot of black people in small towns, right? And they have their own existences, and so we make the small town into this idyllic sort of place and created around these certain values. And I'm like, no, nah, man. You need to roll through some of these small towns just a couple times. You ain't going to talk about them the same way if you actually know something about them. No, I, well, you and I could go on. One thing that we have a lot in common about is on that particular topic. But I, um, I want to ask you a couple other things. One I want to talk about – all right, so I said a minute ago that Kornheiser says when something good happens to your friend, it makes you very happy. I will go the opposite of that. When I feel like one of my friends – is being screwed over, I get really upset. And I have to tell you, I'm not not trying to get you to pick a fight here, but I've about had it with the certain writer that has made you sort of the symbol of his creation of a new, um, well, I mean, now look, I mean, I can say who it is. Clay Travis has sort of created this character of himself, which has made himself very popular in the past year, that isn't who he is really. And he's kind of used you as his punching bag. He even makes your name part of his thing. He says, you know, bro money, PC guys or whatever. You have sort of turned him off. But just in general, you have now found yourself with this whole group of people who attack you all the time, whether you respond or not. What has that been like? And how do you deal with that without just punching everyone in the face? Yeah, like I will say that there's a – it's kind of tricky. The, the part of it that's kind of tricky is I'm not really inclined to let things fly. No, you're not. You and I share that. <laughs> like you and I are not pacifist, and that's why I think it's amazing you haven't gotten into it more. Yeah, it's just but with, with this one, it's like, yo, I can't win here because, like, I think there's a certain level of visibility, but the visibility is in circles I don't really care about. Yes. So it's kind of like, okay, you're like, you guys dab each other up, be happy about it, you know, if this is like really what you think it is. But part of what I think is funny about it, and, like, I think you know me pretty well to know this, like, the idea of me being so wildly PC is kind of hilarious. Yeah. Like, that's got that's so far away. And the other part that's funny with this is, I always think that I, the folks who have decided that I'm that person, like, I don't think they've ever heard me and you ever talk about my general critique of the liberal. 
No. Like, I'm not so wild about I'm not so wild about one of, Yeah, one of these days, you and I will just do a podcast just on that, because I think it would be interesting for people to hear both of us, because we, we come at it from different sides, but you and I both critique liberals maybe harsher than most conservatives. But, but you have become, for that group, that symbol. Yeah, I don't know. I, I and and like I don't even know what the things are to really point to that made like like how how they concluded that I was the guy to try to pick on. I think part of it was, and I wouldn't blame anybody for reaching this conclusion, but I think part of it was initially for the folks that decided to do that, it seemed like a good idea because it was so obvious that I would fight back, and then it becomes the thing. The one thing that I think those folks lose sight of is I am really averse to. Spectacle, right? Like I've never out here to do things for spectacle. I think that people have a certain idea of me that I'm, you know, and I think that people say this about anybody on television they don't like. But you know, the idea that I'm just like craving attention in that yeah, way—you're uh, not making really an not. argument just to get attention. You make arguments because you actually believe them. Yeah, and but you know what the thing is, there are times where I know the argument could perhaps be provocative, and that's just not enough to stop me from saying it in most cases. But I can't get. I can't get no special with these clowns. Right? <laughs> okay, well then let's. But, but for that, but the for the he, part. for the head clown though with Clay, that at some point, like I remember, because again, I'm buddies with. I like Paul Feinbaum, and you and Eve had run-ins, and I remember at some point you just felt like on TV you just had to deal with that. I know Clay's not on ESPN, so it makes it easier. But at some point, I mean, he picks and picks and picks at you. And you, for the most part, kind of turned the other cheek. I got to the point that it made me so mad, I muted him. And I've not muted a national writer, anyone except him, just because it annoyed me so much. How do you not go after him? I know you well enough to know that you want to crush him. How do you not do it? And why don't you do it? Did you know what I realized also? The only time I hear about him is when he does stuff like this. Like, I can't think of the last time that somebody brought up something that he had done that was, like, legitimately thought-provoking or something that was just like, oh, you really ought to check this out. You know, I, I can't think of the last time somebody did that. So, like, ultimately, I have no problem giving you some attention if you got five Twitter followers. I ain't so inclined to do it for you if you got, like, 75,000, right? Like, nah, 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 nah. And and, and ultimately, then I don't win. Because what happens on the other end, too, Matt, is I wind up with, like, the endless stream of the same guy over and over and over again. Like, I just dealt with this thing with people from Boston a couple weeks ago. And it was just the same thing over and over again. You're a coward. You're a race baiter. Oh, like, hey, I don't. I just. I have nothing to gain from engaging Clay Travis in an argument that I believe is intellectually disingenuous. Like I actually think I would go about it differently with him if I thought he was stupid and I thought that he really, really believes what he's doing right now. Yes. Because then I might think there's something to like go back and forth about. But I don't think he believes. You think stuff. he's playing? Like, a, you think, think he's playing a character? Which, by the way, I do too. Yeah. Yeah, like, I just, I just don't get the feeling that this is really sincere. And since I don't think it's sincere, I can't I can't get into a discussion with somebody that I don't believe is sincere. I will talk to you if you are sincere in your stupidity. I will not deal with your insincere, just disingenuous attempt at making something where all, all it does for me is hurt. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very uh, sort of mature way to look at it. See, I know it's not sincere because I knew him before all this, right? Like, so I know he's full of it. And that's what drives me crazy is because he could be – well, I mean, you and he could, in a different world, be really good friends because you're both smart. But, like, you're right. It's not sincere with him. Now, um, All right, so well, – I'm, And I'm also just kind of fascinated by the idea that I'm the guy to try to come in. Right, like, and I, I can't answer why that is because I'm not the first incumbent at me. But it is kind of like, for me, like, fascinating the idea, A, that I could potentially be visible enough that somebody would think that they could make bones by attacking me. <laughs> um, you know, like, like, that, like that, that's a crazy thought to have. Like, the idea that you're going to start a rat beef with me to kind of jumpstart your career in a way is a bit of validation, right? Like, like, like there's something to be said. Yeah, but isn't it like in, the ni- like in the 90s, everybody would always say, and again, I wasn't, I'm not like, like I was a rap expert, but everybody would always say Nas is the best rapper. And for most people, they go, I can only name one song he's ever done. But there was a notion, I think, for rappers that like Nas, you, you wanted to be better than Nas. I think, Clay, and people know that you're like the smartest guy that does this stuff. That's on national television talking about this stuff. He knows that. And I think they come after you because of that. It's not that you're the most famous. I mean, you're not Skip Bayless. You're not. But it's that they know you're Nas. Like, they know you're the smartest, and that's why he does it, in my opinion. And I also think that they will believe that it's easy to get you a cheering section when you do this. And there is. There's a lot of people that love to see somebody try to, you know, shut me down in any way. But, like, the relatively young, you know, smart black dude. It ain't that hard to get you a posse behind you to be like, yeah, man, we got you, you know? So it's almost easy money in a way. But, like, even if I were to, like, engage in in something like this, I tend to turn off all the snark at that point. You get to be, like, really sincere about what the issue is. I can't do spectacle. Yeah, you're not. That, I got you. All right, let me give you a couple series, a couple of little your sports takes on ba- basketball. I give you any Cal player for the next ten years: Davis Towns, Wall, Cousins, or you could take a Booker, you could take a Monk, whatever you want. Who you taking for the next ten years? I, I think I'm taking Carl Towns, even over Anthony like, Davis. I'm starting to get worried about the fact that he's hurt all the time. Like it's, it, like, it's past the point of it being exceptional, you know, when it happens. It's almost getting to the point of being expected. But the question I, ha- I have about him is one thing I always said about Marcus Camby was, you might only get 65 games a year out of Marcus Camby, but if you get the right 65, you're in a fifth place. I don't know how you do that with your best player and you're only getting 65. Yeah, true. But, man, when he's at his best, he's amazing. He's incredible. He's incredible. It's, like, it's hard to believe that he exists in the state of nature. But, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything, but the thing that David can't be having in common is growth spurt. You know, and you got to wonder, like, what a super growth spurt, like, as you go down the line, how that affects your ability to hold up this. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Have you gotten to see this Kentucky team, Fox or Monk, play yet? No, I still have not, but everybody tells me they're a lot of fun. Yeah, this is the most fun. You and I have talked in the past about how Cal teams are secretly not always very fun. Uh, yeah, th- th- this is a fun one. I mean, Fox and Monk, if you can't have fun watching them, I mean, Cal's letting them run up and down the court. He doesn't let anybody run up and down the court, but he loves this group running. No, that's all right. Yeah, and I, and I need to get to it soon. I hate it that I missed that Carolina game. Something happened I wasn't able to see. That was a hell of a game. I mean, that's the one of the best college games I've seen in a long, 
long time. I mean, that's it, it was that was one that was one for the books. I mean, you score forty seven when you're a freshman in college and you're like seventh college game. That's something else. Yeah, that's nuts in front of like twenty two thousand, right? Yeah, I mean, and like, at twenty two, the, like, the Dean Dome is not quite intimidating necessarily, but I imagine it's a lot if you're a college. Well, player. no, that was in Vegas. Remember, like that game. That's right. Part of what made that game amazing is about three fourths of the crowd was Kentucky, about one fourth was Carolina. Everybody'd been drinking. All right, so it was loud. It was not like it was like an NCAA tournament. If everybody was loud and they knew the game really didn't matter, so they weren't nervous. And that's what it was like. It was in it, Bomani, it was one of the best atmospheres I've been for just a regular season sporting event ever. It really was awesome. And you and you could also probably speak to the fact that even though it's like a particular subset that's gonna travel, you know, to the tournament, but the traveling Carolina crowd is a little different than the Deep Stone crowd. Yes, yeah, same they're with not, Kentucky. They're, they're not quite the same people. And the Vegas crowd is the party crowd. Like it was the party Kentucky yes. fans and the party Carolina fans. Which is part of what made it loud. All right, but I'm not, I can't let you go. You and I, I, I say this a lot. You and I, I guess it was almost nine years ago, got in our only fight. It was the only time I, you and I have ever really fought. You hung up on me when I told you that Barack Obama was going to be president, and you told me I was insane. And it led to you and I talking about politics at various points. So I have to ask you, I can't get you off here without asking. First of all, Obama's. This is his last night. He's president for an hour and 45 more minutes. How do you look at his eight years? I mean, honestly, it's fair to ask the question, how much better did anybody think it was going to go? Like, oh, wait, it was all bad. I think that we forget at this point what it was like approaching that election where the two candidates had to go in and give their plan for the economy because it looked like we were on the verge of ruin yeah, like, I mean, that the two of them, people forget worse. Obama and McCain went, met with George Bush and Bernanke and Nancy Pelosi, and the five of them kind of came up with how we were going to save the economy. I don't think I could imagine Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and them doing that. I mean, that was actually a very selfless act by all of those people, don't you think? Yeah, no, no, no. It was a lot going on at the time, man. It was a lot going on. We are definitely in a better place in 2016 than we were in 2008. I just don't think there's any argument against it. Now, is it as good as a lot of people would have wanted? Nah, probably not, right? But I mean, that's kind of the nature of the beast. But it's hard to make an argument that you're not in a much better, not in a much better place as a nation than we were eight years ago. And now, I mean... Well, I always sense, yo, before I get to Trump, I always sense ambivalence with you, though, about Obama. Like, you like him, but I don't think you you quite like – I don't know. I, I always sense some ambivalence. Am I reading that wrong, or is that there? Yeah, no, yeah. I, like, we have some fun. Me and I have some fundamental disagreements on some things. Um, I think that he is, and, you know, if historians will allow it, he, he will go down as one of the most significant figures in the history of the United States of America for a number of reasons. Um, I, like I say, there are, there are just a lot of things that he and I disagree on just when I think of them. Like, the foreign policy stuff, I'm not, he and I are not on the same page. Race stuff, he and I are not really on the same page. Um, I think, like, quietly... 
stuff with like restrictions on journalists and stuff, I find it crazy. Like Trump's coming in, and I see all the journalists are afraid. But trust me, they didn't want another eight years of Obama either. Like, yeah, he Obama wasn't he wasn't friendly to journalists by any means. Nah, no, nah, he talked about like you don't, you know, you're not here to be cheerleaders or whatever it is. I bet a lot of people rolled their eyes. <laughs> You know, like this, I mean, there's stuff like that, right? Um, but and, you know, if I just look objectively at how he did the job, man, it's hard to argue that he did a bad one. All right, so now tomorrow, in a sentence that would have astounded anyone three years ago to have said, we will swear in Donald Trump as the president of the United States. And what are your thoughts on that? <sighs> Man. I mean, ask you this. Are you scared? Like, there are people who are, like, there are liberals out there who are, like, scared. Like, I don't necessarily get that. Like, I don't think, I think it's going to be, he's going to be terrible. But I don't, I'm not scared of his four years. Are you? See, I don't know if I'm scared, but I also make a lot of money. Right? Like, it's it's kind (laughs) of easy for me to not be scared. Like, I'm going, I'm going to be just fine. Like, unless some real wild shit happens, I'd be wild. Right now, I am kind of in the class of people that's kind of like, you know, maybe this won't be so bad. You know, taxes could be cool. You know? <laughs> so there's a little part of you that's like, my, I'm going to get more money at the end of the day. My taxes may go down. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like there's no place for me to win in this. <laughs> like, it would be disingenuous and dishonest um, of me to do that. But I, what I, I am a bit worried. And the, the, well, the thing that worries me is I can't figure out what level of, like, crazy thing that he would have to do for his own side to be like, yo, we can't get behind that. Like, maybe if we start getting some sort of answer to that that isn't disturbing, I'll say that there's no reason to be afraid. But the question that I do have there is, how? like, what does he have to say to make people be like, nah, man, we can't do that? But I don't know what people... And I I don't know where that line is. See, I think his awfulness is really more in tone and words. But I am... Now, again, I may be proven wrong on this. I don't think from an action standpoint... He's going to do much, many things that are much worse for, from my perspective than almost any candidate would do. Now, he's going to say awful things, and he's going to make me drive me nuts with the way he talks and talks about people. But in terms of doing, like I almost believe the, 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 his supporters that say, you know what? We don't believe he'll do any of the things he says. And there, there are re- reporters who go, but yes, he will. But, Monty, I kind of don't think he will. Yeah, I guess we're going to see, huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to repeal Obamacare. I, or at least if they do, I don't think the people, like in Kentucky, the 400,000 people that have gotten health care, I don't think he's going to take it away from them. I think that would be a huge political mistake, and I think his people know that, so I just don't think he's going to do it. You know? Um, the, 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 the argument that you make is solid. The question that it raises is how much would his people tell him matter and when it matters, what his people tell him. And we have no grasp on what that is. Well, that, no, I mean, that's true. I mean, I heard somebody that knew him say that he tends to believe whatever the last thing he heard. 
I mean, <laughs> let, let, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's stop for a second a moment to appreciate the fact that he's writing his own inaugural address. Yeah, but you don't believe that either. Right. You don't believe that, right? He's no. not He's not right. Um, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll know. We'll find out. <laughs> and, 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 and I raised the question as to whether or not if people were given a choice between him writing his inaugural address and Steve Banner writing his inaugural address, who would you rather write the inaugural address? I think most of the people who laugh at Trump writing his own inaugural address much rather Trump write it than Steve Bannon. See, okay, well, that gets to the other thing. The syntax syntax would be perfect if Bannon wrote it. All right, well, let me ask you this. I don't think that's what they want. All right, so this is an interesting thing for people that think like you and I. All right, you and I probably agree with a little bit of the – I mean, Trump says that he wants to bring back blue-collar jobs to America. Now, leave aside whether or not he has the ability to do it, all that all that stuff. But let's just say, for sake of argument, that some of these companies placate his ego and keep some jobs here just so he won't tweet something that'll hurt their stock price. Now, you could argue, why are you doing that? That's not what the president should do. But let's just say he does. Is that not good? Uh, it raises the question of what it leads to next. Like, I don't, I don't know what any of this stuff is, man. I can't believe this is real life. <laughs> like, I just can't. <laughs> I am so, I am so blown away by the idea that this is real life. Like, Donald Trump has Jim Brown riding. Okay, what do you think about that? Okay, what do you think about that? Opposition of John Lewis. Like how how, how did Jim? What do you think of that? How is Jim Brown? Like, is it just the masculinity thing? Because you know Jim Brown's had w- w- woman issues his entire life. You think that's the yeah, common denominator? He, no, I think that part of this is very particular to the type of man that Jim Brown is, and also Jim Brown is a man of considerable ego. So I believe that Jim Brown believes that he can get Donald Trump to put him in a position to do good things, right? Because Jim Brown's got his organization, which does very good things. So Jim Brown can get something from Trump for his operation to go, to go do good things. I can see why Jim Brown would sign up, and I think that Jim Brown looks at it like, look, I have an opportunity to have to hear the president, and Jim Brown probably fully believes that Donald Trump listens to him because who wouldn't listen to Jim Brown? Let Jim Brown tell it, yeah. right? So then, I see, so then I see Jim Brown talk about John Lewis, and Jim Brown's point was, look, don't complain about the fact that you lost. you got to find a way to work with this man, so I'm going to find a way to work with him. I did not find that to be unreasonable. Okay. Um, you know, it's a little, you know, you hearing, hearing Jim Brown talk about John Lewis being a hero back in the Civil Rights days, like, come on, Jim is also resting on past glory when he, discussed, when he discusses these things, too. Right, but I understand knowing a bit about how Jim is wired and how Jim has, you know, came up. Jim probably believes that he can that he can get through to Donald Trump because if there's anybody that's got a bigger ego than Donald Trump, is Jim Brown. Okay, and let's say that he can. Let's just say, for sake of argument, that everything you said that Jim Brown believes he does. Isn't that a positive? I mean, is there is there an argument that if Steve Harvey or 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 Jim Brown or or you know pick your Democrat Leonardo DiCaprio about climate change wouldn't talk to him that if they're able to have a positive impact that they should I, I find myself not able to disagree with that. Do you? 
Oh, yeah, no, I've, I've said uh, many times that if the president asks to meet with you, you meet with the president. <laughs> That's just, I, mean, I don't think this is a complex thought, right? It may ultimately turn out to be a waste of your time. You can try to do your best to not have it be manipulated into a PR stunt or opportunity. But if the president of the United States wants to meet with you, I think you meet with the president of the I United agree. States. I, I would also, that. I would also make the argument that not meeting with this president of the United States isn't necessarily the thing you want to do. Also a good point. I, it seems to me Trump really likes celebrity, right? Like celebrity is his thing. So when he wants to talk about climate change, he brings in Leonardo DiCaprio. He doesn't bring in a real scientist. But if DiCaprio can have an impact, as stupid as it is that he wants to talk to DiCaprio, well, so be it. I mean, Steve Harvey, the, the idea that the way to reach and talk about inner cities is to talk to Steve Harvey is stupid. But if Steve Harvey can have a positive impact, why not? You know? I will say this also. It was to a degree reassuring that Trump called DiCaprio to talk about climate change. Um, because it is somewhat insulting to call Steve Harvey to ask for his plan for the inner city. But to find out that you feel the same way about the earth and will call <laughs> someone is equally unqualified to discuss the matter. Um, you know, i got to cut trouble a little more. So like that, baby, I was inclined to the beginning, right? He'll do, it, he'll do it to anybody. He'll do it on anything. Hey, what, what, what the Donald Trump is it how you think? Is it that bad right there? Like, there you go. Like, well, there you, know, you like, go. That, All that, right. that part, I, I, I would have to say. But, no, I mean, I, I don't blame people for going to meet with them, right? But I don't know if after you do that, you necessarily need to come and sing his praise. Would like, you, would you, Bomani Jones, if you were elected to Congress, would you go tomorrow? Uh, probably. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Last question. Grayson Allen. Give me your two-minute take on Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen should have come out of school last year. That's the two-minute take on Grayson Allen. Whoever convinced him to come back to school made a horrendous mistake. I mean, he's a good basketball player, certainly. I just don't understand, like, all this tripping people and knowing that everybody's watching you. Like, don't say somebody, like, really going upside his head before it stops. You well, know? He needs like, a DeMarcus just, Cousins. He needs point. to do it to DeMarcus Cousins, and then it won't happen again, right? Yeah, like, he's going to catch the wrong one at some point, I would imagine. And, by the way, I think – I don't think that, that much is being, like, written on it or anything, and I don't have any inside information, but this has got to be a fascinating season behind the scenes to do basketball. Oh, dude, I wish somebody was writing a book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, all these freshmen with the upperclassmen, and we've seen this happen before, with the upperclassmen that don't really want to seize their turf. And then Krzyzewski, this is kind of the new deal that he's bought, and his general – I've brought a seven-man rotation, and then he needs the back surgery, and now it's Jeff Capel's time to shine. I mean, it's a lot going on. Yeah, and Jeff Jeff Capel, who promised dudes playing time, and he was able to say, well, coach won't play you, and now he's the one not playing them. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. Yo, dude, that's the, there's a couple guys on that roster that Jeff Capel promised minutes and I'm sure when they weren't playing, he was saying, "Listen, this is Mike. I'm trying, but now he's got to, you know, he's making the decision now." <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like there this year. And by the way, how many people are on the sidelines? And I told you so to them about oh. their, shall we say, diff- uh, 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 evolving approach to personnel evaluation and management. It's a great point. Great point, Bomani. I love talking to you. We could, I could do it all night long. 
I appreciate it. You know, it's late at night. You take an hour out of your schedule to do it. Thank you very much. You've always been a friend to KSR, and we appreciate it. No problem, man. You take it easy. All right. Send lawyers, guns, and money.